When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to an Ono Media podcast. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and a quick note before I start today's podcast. I'm actually traveling. I'm in Arizona being grandma for a week to my adorable grandson, Asher. His mom and dad are on a cruise, and I actually consider myself the lucky one who gets to spoil him rotten for seven whole days. So I went ahead and recorded this episode right before I left. And because of that, I'm telling you a suggested story from one of our awesome Rise in Crime listeners. I'll make sure I catch you up on all other crime news in the next episode, but this is just a really interesting story that kind of leaves us without an update. So let's dive in to Trenton, Missouri. You guys, this is a small town, middle America. The population of Trenton is just over 5,600 people, and the population, it's actually trending downward. At the time of our story, there were roughly 500 more people living in the area. And the median income is pretty low, about $25,000 a year. Now, Trenton is about 100 miles from Kansas City, which isn't too far from big city life, but Trenton is definitely off the beaten path. I'm just trying to paint a picture of the small town life because it's important to the story. Trenton is the place where you go to the local grocery store and you know most of the people in the store. People wave at each other. You take care of one another. But for Tanner Ward, in June of 2017, he fell through the cracks in a small town where there's not supposed to be cracks. Tanner was a 19-year-old kid who was just trying to find his way. I don't really have another way to explain that. It hasn't been bump-free for Tanner, but he's given it a good shot. And like a lot of small-town kids, he did his fair share of getting in trouble in a town where there wasn't much to do but get in trouble. But his life was turning around. He and his girlfriend, Megan, had become parents to a beautiful little girl named Sophia. And Tanner was working his way into fatherhood. It was a big change. But according to his sister, Kelsey, Tanner had fallen head over heels for little Sophia. Kelsey was sure Tanner would have done anything for that little girl. Now, June 7th of 2017 was a pretty average Wednesday evening. It was Tanner's night to have Sophia. And as his mother was preparing dinner for Tanner and his daughter... Tanner said he needed to pop over and see a friend real quick. Nothing big. According to True Crime Daily, Tanner's mother asked if he was going to be back for dinner. He assured her he would only be about 30 minutes and that he would love for her to grill him a piece of chicken. He kissed Sophia and promised to be back soon. But that chicken turned cold and Sophia went to bed 
and Tanner never came home. Now, Tanner might have had some troubling issues in the past, but this didn't match his behavior, at least according to his mother, Lisa. She said the concern was palpable on Wednesday, but when morning came on Thursday and no one had heard from Tanner, his sister, Kelsey, set out searching for him. Where to start? Who was Tanner popping over to see the night before? Kelsey said Tanner had said he needed to go see a new friend named Jeremiah. But here's the weird thing about someone like Jeremiah. He was basically unknown in a town where, remember, everyone knows everyone. After some amateur sleuthing, Kelsey figured out where Jeremiah was staying. She told TCD that she marched right up to the door and knocked several times. When there was no answer, she tried the door handle. It wasn't locked. And she did what I think a lot of us would do. She went ahead and went in. But what greeted her didn't settle any of her fears. The apartment was a complete disaster. The furniture's trash. The living room wall is scarred with a gaping hole. Even more concerning, the door that leads to the backside of the apartment is wide open. As Kelsey tenderly makes her way around the overturned furniture, she spots Tanner's baseball cap. And you guys know those guys, the ones who wear the same favorite baseball cap like all of the time. That was Tanner, and that was definitely his hat. Kelsey gathered the hat and went straight to the police. And do I even need to tell you the next part? Of course, police were measured. And we've had this conversation before. Adults can disappear if they want to, and Tanner's an adult. But there is a destroyed apartment and an orphaned baseball cap. Kelsey and Lisa aren't buying the idea that Tanner just left to maybe check out for a bit or go see another girl, like the police suggested. But they go ahead and cooperate with police, and one week missing turns into two weeks missing. And Kelsey prints up flyers, hanging them not just in Trenton, but also in the other surrounding small towns. As Kelsey is out and about trying to alert community members to Tanner's disappearance, she runs into Jeremiah, that mysterious person who quite possibly was the last person in Trenton to see Tanner on that Wednesday night. Now, this isn't a meetup where they casually say hi and Kelsey maybe asks some softly worded questions about Tanner. Because when Jeremiah exits his truck and approaches Kelsey, Jeremiah is wearing Tanner's shirt. At least Kelsey believes it's Tanner's gray American Eagle shirt. And as if that isn't concerning enough to Kelsey, the shirt has four small burn holes, possibly from cigarettes. Well, Kelsey told TCD that she blasts Jeremiah saying, what the hell is on your shirt? She said Jeremiah claimed they were stains. She told Jeremiah that those didn't look like stains and that she was going to call the police. And according to Kelsey, an arrogant Jeremiah countered with, great, I'll just meet you at the police station. Well, guess what? Jeremiah was already acquainted with the police chief. He'd been looked into, but nothing concrete had been found. And the police chief, Thomas Wright, said he asked Jeremiah for that shirt he was wearing. It took a lot of convincing, but Jeremiah finally gave the shirt to Chief Wright. And according to the chief, the shirt was analyzed, tested, and never proven to be Tanner's, despite Kelsey's insistence that it absolutely was Tanner's. Now, Chief Wright didn't just 
and his investigation with the interview and the shirt testing. Whatever had happened in that interview, I don't think we're ever going to know. Chief Wright is concerned enough that he drove on out to Jeremiah's dad's house in Edinburgh, Missouri to conduct a search. Now, if you thought Trenton was a small town, Edinburgh has less than 100 people living in the unincorporated community. After searching the property, cadaver dogs hit on a spot near the back door to the house. Well, Jeremiah refers to this area as a burn pit. And if you're not familiar with country living, burning on country property happens all the time. People burn trash. I grew up on seven acres. We burned leaves and weeds. We actually took our trash to a landfill, but we would even burn our fields from time to time just to kill off the weeds. So this burn pit, that seems pretty normal to me. But the dog hitting on the burn pit? Not so much. Police conducted a forensic dig, unearthing a six foot by 10 foot hole. But all the bones that were found in the burn area were confirmed to be animal in nature, not human. So it was a dead end for investigators. But I'm just going to leave this question hanging out there. What was said in the interview that constituted cadaver dogs and backhoes? I also want to say one more thing before we carry forward with the rest of the story. Some of you might be asking about why doesn't he have a cell phone or did he drive to Jeremiah's? Where's his car? Well, it's important to know that Tanner didn't have a cell phone and he didn't have a car. In fact, Jeremiah's place was pretty close. So he just walked to it and was supposed to walk right back in that 30 minutes. I I felt like I needed to answer that question for you before we carry on with the next part of the story. Well, it's been six months, and the fall season has settled into the small town. School's back in session. And honestly, most people have probably gone on about their lives, but not Tanner's family. They're still desperately searching for Tanner. And they know Tanner's no angel. They know his drug usage and previous run-ins with the law and that that constitutes a high-risk behavior and that those things could have come back to rear their ugly side to him. Because, see, back in 2016, Tanner and his brother Tyler were involved in a violent home invasion that led Tanner to be on felony probation. Okay, it all started when the teens were angry about a bad drug deal. Tanner and Tyler showed up at a home They brandished weapons, and they held people in the home until the dispute was settled. Now, like I said, he's on felony probation, so the legal process worked his way out. And Tanner's family, well, they also know his choice in friends was less than stellar as well. So all of that adding up was making for a complicated life for Tanner. But there's one thing they're sure of. They are adamant that he wouldn't walk away. And the social media posts show that they just kept asking and searching and praying for those six months. Then, on a chilly December morning, two teens are walking to Trenton High along a path that multiple people walk. And that's when they spot Tanner, swinging lifeless from a tree. Except, no one can really tell it's Tanner by just looking at the corpse. The body is badly decomposed. The hands are mummified, and if you're ready for this, the feet are missing off the body. And what Chief Wright does next could be controversial. I'm, I'm still not sure how I feel about it, but he calls Tanner's dad Curtis to the scene. 
Chief Wright says he wants Curtis to be the first to find out, which I get. It's a small town. Word travels fast. But he also is asking Curtis for help in identifying the clothing, which is possibly laying amongst tangled branches beneath the body. Okay, you can hear the questioning in my voice. I say possibly because there's different ideas of this death scene out there. Some reporting says he had only his jeans on. Other reporting says Tanner's wearing his shirt. There is one consistency. One shoe is there, but there's no feet, and there's one sock, and then he's wearing pants. All right, and no matter where the clothing is at or whether it's on him or beneath him, the clothing does all seem to have the appearance of being outside for quite some time. Like it's stiff and worn. So the appearance of this is it initially seems to match up that the body's been there for quite some time. Of course, the procedure will be to check dental records and conduct an autopsy. And both of those exams confirm it is Tanner Ward who had been found hanging from the tree. But something else the autopsy finds. The examiner believes Tanner committed suicide. And you're saying, well, Mama Jules, he was hanging from a tree. But scientifically, the examiner finds that the only injury to the skeletal structure is the broken neck, which the examiner believes happened when Tanner fell during the act of suicide. So not to get too graphic, but it's as if he jumped off of something or was pushed off of something, and then his neck broke versus maybe him putting the rope on the tree and pulling it up and him suffocating. Okay, like I said, I didn't want to get too graphic there, but there is a broken neck, so it's a different kind of suicide. But for Tanner's family, all of that, that's just not adding up. There's no suicide note. You guys, he was engaged to be married to Megan. He loved beautiful little Sophia. He was making future plans for even that upcoming Father's Day weekend. He was also incredibly excited that his dad was going to be returning from deployment. So the body is 20 feet up in a tree. How did he jump off something to create that break in his neck? Lisa says she just can't believe that her son put himself in that tree. All right, there's this thing with small towns. Everyone knows everyone, right? But another thing about small towns, the rumor mill is always up and running. It doesn't even take legal holidays off. And the rumor mill was sharing tips and hints with Tanner's sister, Kelsey, and his mom, Lisa. They're getting text messages with potential clues or theories. And some of the messages come from complete strangers, people they don't even know, and they don't know if Tanner knows them. But these people might be able to understand the world that Tanner was dabbling in. So what are those rumors? Well, one message was sure that Tanner had been tortured for months before being hung in the tree. And then another rumor was that he was kept hanging in a cellar and mistakenly his captors had killed him and had to make it look like a suicide. So they put him in the tree. Okay. There's so many rumors that came in about torture that Kelsey believes her brother was kept alive for weeks or even months before he was killed and that the hanging in the tree was just staged. But Chief Wright assured the family he had checked into the torture rumors and nothing solid had turned up from the grand stories. And it's this point in the story where I'm sure you're asking question after question. 
about where this tree was located and how could a body hang in the hot Missouri summer without anyone noticing it or even smelling it. All right, first off, this is how small this town is. This tree is three blocks from Tanner's home. And this is also Lisa's big concern and also why she can't buy into the suicide angle. She told TCD that in north central Missouri, it's hot and humid and wet in the summer months. She said that exact summer, they had had tons of thunderstorms that have come through the area. She couldn't understand how a body could reach a mummified state if that much moisture was in the air. They also say the body didn't have enough insect activity to explain hanging from a tree for six months. Now, you guys, that's not the thing that's gnawing at me about Tanner's death, the fact that the corpse looks like it does and it was hanging there. My question is, how? How did no one see this body for six months when it was just three blocks from Tanner's home? Now, I've driven through Missouri. That's the extent of my knowledge of the area. It's green. It's beautiful. And of course, this tree was probably leafy all summer long. But fall had come, and the tree is not far from the trail people walk. And the family has spoken with a construction worker that was near that tree the whole summer of 2017. He told TCD that he was within 10 feet of that tree multiple times, and that he can assure everyone that the body of Tanner Ward was not in that tree during the summer months. In fact, that construction worker is sure he would have smelled Tanner even if he hadn't seen him hanging from the tree 20 feet up. And let's talk about the two teens that found the body. Well, sadly, one of the teens was well acquainted with Tanner. He was a childhood friend who was just a couple years younger than Tanner. He also told the family that he had walked that path several times. He is sure that he would have seen the body before that chilly December day, especially since the jeans were dark blue and wouldn't have blended in with any of the surrounding foliage. Okay, so we've got the construction worker and the friend who found the body, but there's another witness. Kelsey's friend Veronica had walked the path a week before the body was found. Veronica said her son was playing on the pallets from the construction site and that he was nearly right underneath the tree on that day. She is sure she would have seen the body. Now, if you're 100% sure that Tanner didn't die by suicide, I'm going to tell you to just hold on for a bit because a forensic pathologist determined that the decomposition of the body, the tugging of the gravity on the limbs, well, those two factors led to a conclusion that the body had been hanging from the tree for six months. And I think you have to examine where this body could have been stored to accomplish the gravity pull on the skeletal structure. It's an important detail. And you remember the violent confrontation over the bad drug deal? Well, there's potential that that beef hadn't been all the way settled. Even after the situation had been dealt with on the legal front... People believe the conflict simmered between Tanner and Jeremiah and a girl named Stephanie Miller. Now, Kelsey told TCD that Stephanie's daughter was one of the people held by gunpoint in that home invasion that was perpetrated by Tanner and Tyler. Kelsey believes Stephanie had a score to settle. And the rumor mill fueled this idea. 
Kelsey said they had been told that in retribution for the home invasion, Tanner was supposed to be tortured by his captors, but they seemed to take things too far. Now, it's important to note that Stephanie has never been named as a person of interest in Tanner's death or disappearance. It's also important to note that the official ruling after 10 months of investigation is that Tanner Ward died from suicide and that his body had been hanging in that tree for the entire time since his disappearance on that June night. You guys, the trail goes cold there. With many people in the small town questioning if law enforcement covered up this death. I know I'm left with unanswered questions, but one that I did answer. I did do some digging and I found Megan's Facebook page. I just wanted to make sure that little Sophia was doing well. Last July, Megan made a post about Sophia and how she was crying about her dad. She wrote that Sophia asked that she wished she could live in a different town so that her dad could come and see her. You guys, that's so heartbreaking. But also, she's turned into this just beautiful little girl. She's on a cheer squad and her mother is engaged to a man who has pictured posted with Sophia. I know it's just social media, but I truly hope both Sophia and Megan are happy and making Tanner proud. Now, I also wanted to give true crime enthusiasts the details on a decision that will surely affect the solving of crimes in the future. Here's what's happening. The Amazon-owned Ring Doorbell has made a corporate decision to stop allowing police departments to request camera footage from users. Okay, so previously, when a crime had been committed, police would activate the Request for Assistance tool on the Ring Doorbell Neighbors app. This would be a way for police to go directly to consumers, and they could then send back the videos that had been captured by the cameras. Well, Eric Kuhn, he's the head of the Neighbors app. He said in the announcement that law enforcement agencies will still be able to make public posts in the Neighbors app. Police and other agencies can also still use the app to share helpful safety tips or updates or community events but the app will not allow the sharing option. Now, this update is the latest restriction Ring has made to police activity on the Neighbors app, following some concerns raised by privacy watchdogs. They're concerned about the company's relationship with police departments across the country. People who were frustrated with the sharing option said that the cultivating of this relationship like the one between law enforcement and ring doorbell users, well, they say that that cultivation actually makes neighborhoods a place of constant surveillance, which they say in turn brings about racial profiling. Now, this isn't the first time ring has tried to appease those who felt the cameras were too intrusive. In 2021, ring had changed their then existing policy. So previously, back then, law enforcement could make the request to a specific home, like an actual address that might have coincided with where a crime had been committed. But like I said, they changed that policy in 2021, and now all the requests by police officers were just public to ring doorbell users. So in the change, everyone could see what was being asked by local agencies. 
Now, a senior policy analyst at the Digital Rights Group Electronic Frontier Foundation said that this massive shift to privacy will hopefully now force Ring out of the business of platforming casual and warrantless police requests. Now, it's not a complete dead end for law enforcement. Their agencies can still access videos using search warrants, and Ring also kind of put this clause in there. They have this clause that maintains the right to share footage without user consent in limited circumstances. In mid-2022, Ring disclosed it handed over 11 videos to police without notifying users that year, and they used this excuse. They said they had exigent or emergency circumstances. Okay, so that's one of the categories that allows Ring to share videos without actually having permission from owners. Well, last summer, Ring agreed to pay $5.8 million to settle a lawsuit with the Federal Trade Commission over allegations that the company let employees and contractors access user videos. Okay, furthermore, that agency said Ring had inadequate security practices which allowed hackers to control consumer accounts and cameras. Okay, the company completely disagrees with those claims, and of course they do because they had to pay money. But I think it's important to identify that it's not only just to protect neighborhoods of why they've changed their policy, but I totally get that sometimes these requests by law enforcement might feel intrusive. That's understandable. But I'm also looking at it from the other side where in crimes that happen where every second counts and it could mean life or death or possibly a criminal permanently getting away, this feels like a pretty big roadblock. I'd love to know what you think. You can leave a comment on social media or on YouTube. All right, you guys, that's your Thursday episode of Rise and Crime. I will be back with updated crime news on Monday. Thanks for joining Ono Media and Rise and Crime. And as always, I would love if you would leave a five-star rating and review. That always helps this podcast grow. And please tell a friend and subscribe while you're at it. You can join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.